The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. The number of Christians facing imminent death has increased horrifyingly with Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. And I'm thinking not just of the heroic Ukrainian Orthodox Church, but also the Ukrainian Catholic Church, which worships using a Byzantine liturgy, that is, a liturgy very similar to that of the Orthodox. This is a community that, ever since it reunited with Rome in the 16th century, has been especially despised by the Russian Orthodox Church and its secular rulers, some might say masters. It was forced entirely underground under Stalin, who demanded that all members of that church join the Orthodox, And although since the end of communism it's been able to worship openly, it's had the uncomfortable feeling of having the rug pulled out from underneath it by none other than the Vatican. This is a process that began under Paul VI, continued to an extent under John Paul II and Benedict, and has really gathered pace under Francis, who in 2016, in Cuba of all places, signed a deal with the Russian Orthodox Church which spoke sneeringly of this heroic Eastern Rite Catholic Church as effectively an obstacle to unity with orthodoxy, something I believe incidentally will never happen. Does any of this ring a bell? It ought to. Look what's happened to the underground church in China, disgustingly sold down the river by Pope Francis and his Secretary of State, Cardinal Paralin. That's a topic I discussed today with my guest, Father Benedict Keeley, who, through his charity Nazarene.org, is a tireless champion of persecuted Christians around the world. Tireless and fearless, I might add, because as you'll hear in our conversation, he doesn't shrink from comparing the situation in Ukraine and China. So, Father Ben, I was very pleased to see that Prince Charles and the Duchess of Cornwall visited Bishop Kenneth Novakovsky, who's head of the Ukrainian Catholic Diocese of the Holy Family in London at their cathedral yesterday. Slightly blows my mind that the Ukrainian bishop is called Kenneth, but I think it's rather wonderful. Very nice to see support for this, I think, heroic, embattled church coming from the Prince of Wales. Also, I notice a wonderful message of support was sent to the major archbishop, Sevchuk, of the Greek Catholic, as it's called, Ukrainian Church, from Cardinal Pell. And Cardinal Pell said, With these few words and the promise of my prayers, I want to express my support for you and all your people, and indeed all the people of Ukraine, at the time of this illegal and ferocious Russian invasion. I join in your protests against this injustice, and I also regret the absence of support for you in all your suffering. That's Cardinal Pell to his Beatitude Sviatoslav Sevchuk, who is leader of the Greek Rite, that's Byzantine Rite, Ukrainian Catholic Church, sometimes called the Uniates, a term they greatly dislike, who follow Byzantine liturgy and, at least up to a point, have married priests. They're, of course, not married bishops. So in that respect, they're like the Orthodox. 
They are the largest Eastern Rite Catholic Church, and they are so after the Latin Rite, they're the largest group in the Catholic Church. That's certainly more than I think around four million. But life is not easy for them in Ukraine because, of course, they're greatly disliked by the Russian Orthodox and have somewhat difficult relations with the Ukrainian Orthodox. They are, of course, completely united with the Ukrainian Orthodox and with their president in this moment of terrible suffering. But I couldn't help noticing that when the Pope paid his unexpected visit to the Russian ambassador on the outbreak of the war, not only did he not make any mention of Russian aggression in his statement afterwards, but he didn't make any specific reference to the Ukrainian Catholics. And bearing in mind what Cardinal Pell said about the absence of support for you all in your suffering, I'd like to ask you about the record, not just of this pontificate, but other pontificates in dealing with the Ukrainian Greek Catholic community with its unique heritage of Byzantine rituals and practices and spirituality and adherence to the Holy See. Because I get the impression that they haven't been treated very well for a long time. Well, there's a great deal in that very short statement of Cardinal Pell that encompasses centuries, really, of, as you say, not great treatment. Cardinal Pell is alluding not just to this pontificate, alluding certainly back as far as Paul VI in the early 1960s, but also back to the time of Stalin's persecution of the church. Really, perhaps for the the listeners, this is rather deep and it can be rather murky, the history of this church. Sometimes people think the history of Christianity in the Middle East is murky, but if you look at Christianity in in this part of the world as well, it's very difficult. Around about 1596, members of the Russian Orthodox Church became Catholics, basically, merged with the Catholic Church in a union, the Union of Brest-Litovsk, and that was immediately condemned by the Orthodox, and people were murdered. In fact, the great saint of Ukraine, Saint Josephat, who actually is my ordination patron, that's why I have a particular love for the Ukrainian Catholic Church, he was murdered, he was thrown into the river. So from then on, there's, it's been a history of greater or lesser degrees of persecution coming from mainly from the Russian Orthodox, but it has to be said also when Western Ukraine was under the control of Poland, there was a, an attempt to also to suppress them. But certainly, if we jump ahead to the time of communism, then we see this massive persecution of the Ukrainian Catholic Church, the Greek Catholic Church, as they're called, who are, as you said, very much like the Orthodox Church in almost every way. And they are, to be brutally frank, hated by the Russian Orthodox, They are called uniates, which the Greek Catholics hate. It's not a term of endearment at all. And so basically, certainly from the time of Stalin, Stalin tried and indeed did force by a fake merger, a fake synod in Lvov or Lviv, as it's now called, in 1946, all Ukrainian Catholics into the Russian Orthodox Church. He arrested, ordered uh, mass arrests of bishops, priests, and many lay people. There are many, many martyrs. And throughout all this time, yes, Pius Twelfth was very supportive, very strong. But then we got to this period in the 1960s where the doctrine of Ostpolitik, championed by Paul VI, emerged, which was basically to try to find some accommodation, in theory, to allow the church to survive. However, 
what ended up happening was compromise. The great Cardinal Mincenti, the wonderful Cardinal of Hungary, marvellous man who, as we know, was imprisoned for, for many, many years, he said at one point that compromise with this enemy, communism, will almost always play into his hands. Why? Because they play their game of cards, their cheats. You don't play a game of cards with someone who's always going to cheat uh, and who will always lie. There was a relentless persecution of the Ukrainian Catholic Church. And it has to be said, from Paul VI, John Paul II, Benedict, and yes, Francis, they've never really given the church the support that they feel they need. Um, So it's a very, very difficult situation. And this Ostpolitik has a liturgical dimension, I'd suggest, because during all these years after Vatican II, there have been consistent attempts to Latinize or Romanize or whatever you want to call it, the liturgy, not just of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, but of other Eastern Rite Catholic churches, to make them more Roman, less culturally distinctive. For example, The Ukrainian Orthodox are not allowed, I believe, to have married priests in the United States. And generally speaking, this very important element of their heritage is discouraged by Rome. But there has been, and Greek Catholic priests have complained about this to me, consistent attempts to homogenise the worship of the Catholic Church westwards, as it were. There's a, a certain a good amount of truth about in that, certainly in terms of what you're saying about married priests in the United States. Although I'd have to say uh, it's not entirely true because, strangely enough, you, you, I'm sure you know this, but there's a bizarre breakaway group in Ukraine itself of Ukrainian, ex-Ukrainian Catholic priests who've actually broken away and joined the Society of St. Pius X, the breakaway Catholic traditionalist group, because they actually wanted to be more Latin, and they felt that the uh, Ukrainian Catholic Church was becoming too Byzantine. So liturgically, I think part of that is cultural. I, I'm not so sure, particularly now, that the Vatican is pushing pushing that. It might have done that for a while. But no, in terms of uh, things like married priests, yes, in in the US, that's been a problem and uh, something that needs to be reconciled. But there's another question. Archbishop Shevchuk, to whom Cardinal Pell wrote, has the title Major Archbishop of the Ukrainian Catholic Church, and his title is His Beatitude. But what he isn't is either a cardinal, which his predecessors were, or a patriarch, which is something that the Ukrainian Catholic Church would very much like, and I think would be very useful, at least in terms of morale, for them as a church during these terrible times. This is a critical point. The Ukrainian Catholic leader, Archbishop Shevchuk, as he is now, should have the title of Patriarch. That might seem unimportant. What's in a name, people might say. Well, certainly since the 1960s, the great true patriarch of the Ukrainian Catholic Church, Cardinal Joseph Slippy, who was imprisoned from 1946 until 1963, a true white martyr of the church. When he was released in 1963, he'd been in camps in Siberia, he'd had his bones broken. He's a giant, a giant of the church, and his cause of canonization is, is progressing. When he was released and forced into exile in the Vatican, right at the beginning of this Ostpolitik, he requested for this church, for the largest, as I said, the largest church outside the Latin Rite, 
to have the title of patriarch. Because as we know, the Russians and other Orthodox churches, they have patriarchs, patriarch of Moscow, etc., etc. The Vatican has consistently said no. And there's a very simple reason, which I would say now in 2022, especially with what's going on with this invasion, is no longer valid. And that is, it's been about ecumenism with the Russian Orthodox Church. That if he was given, if the leader of the Ukrainian Catholic Church was given the title of patriarch, this will cause problems and in fact perhaps destroy any possibility of ecumenical talks stroke unity with the Russian Orthodox. Well, this has been going on for nearly 60 years. We have to be very blunt and very honest. I remember when I first went to Iraq in 2015, right just before me, the great Cardinal Scola of Milan, a very fine man, went to Iraq. And one of the things he said, he said, when you speak about persecution, you must do two things. You must always speak with complete transparency and complete honesty. Would that we would have that in the church about everything. But if we speak with complete transparency and honesty, we have to say that the Catholic Church has done everything in its power to make life easy, as it were, for the Russian Orthodox, to, to give, to give, to give, continually to give in ecumenical dialogue. There's been nothing, nothing in return. And so now one should say, if you've tried something for 60 years and it's failed, how about supporting this dreadfully persecuted martyr church? They are still requesting. They all, by the way, call within, within the Ukrainian Catholic Church, they call Archbishop Shevchuk the patriarch. But he has been denied this title from Paul VI all the way up now to Francis. I think this is the time for Pope Francis to make a, an act of charity, an act of generosity, and name Archbishop Shevchuk. They invented this title, by the way. Major Archbishop was invented when Cardinal Slippy was released from Soviet jail. They made this title up. It's never been used before in the life of the church. They made it up. And Slippy continually, right up to the time of his death, was asking for this title of patriarch, not for himself, but again to support his persecuted church, which was only allowed to be legal in Ukraine in 1989, right up until then priests, lay people, etc. were being arrested and killed. The question of why Archbishop Shevchuk is not a cardinal is, I think, a lot more to do with this current papacy. That's, a, as it were, a separate issue. But the patriarch issue is not a name. It is a critical thing for the life of the Ukrainian Catholic Church, and it's something that is long overdue. Let's just talk about why he's not a cardinal. He initially considered signing the dubia, asking Pope Francis to elucidate aspects of Amoris Laetitia, and that marked his card. And... Let's not forget that it was this Pope who signed, I think, an appalling deal with the Russian Orthodox in Havana, one which cannot have been welcome to the Ukrainian Catholics. Yes, I think that's true. I mean, uh, as people say, you can't confirm or deny whether he was going to sign the Dubia or not, but that's the rumour. The issue of the Havana meeting, uh, what, a, what a place as well. Pope Francis met Patriarch Kirill, of Moscow, whose KGB codename, by the way, was Mikhailov. And they met in Havana in 2016 and, and signed a joint declaration. And one of these sections is stunning. I'm going to read it to you because if you listen to what it says, then you'll understand why 
the Ukrainian Catholics were upset. This is verbatim, their joint declaration. It is today clear that the past method of uniatism, understood as the union of one community to the other, separating it from its church, is not the way to re-establish unity. That is extraordinary. That means all the previous ways of union, when one group, one, one group of Christians joins the Catholic Church, is being declared invalid. And it's also specifically calling them uniates, which they hate. To, to have that agreed, it's not putting them under the bus. A Vatican journalist said to me that the Greek Catholics felt after that meeting that they'd been thrown under the bus. They'd been thrown under a steamroller with that statement. And right before that meeting, Archbishop Hilarion who's the head of the Russian Orthodox Department of External Affairs, in other words, effectively the foreign minister of the Russian Orthodox Church, he said... And a very bad composer, by the way, of liturgical music. Well, you might think that. I couldn't possibly comment. But he said, speaking of the Ukrainian Catholic Church, they were, his words, a never-healing, bleeding wound that prevents the full normalisation of relations between the two churches. So this is a pretty unpleasant, pretty nasty commentary from the Russian Orthodox. And then a joint declaration is signed, basically saying they should never have joined in the first place. So Archbishop Shevchuk, I think, and many, many Ukrainian Catholics were very upset about this. Uh, so put that together with the fact that allegedly he, did, he was going to sign the dubia. And, you know, he hasn't been made a cardinal. He would be... I would say, very much a candidate for the papacy if he was made a cardinal. It would be almost going back to the Morris West shoes of the fisherman because the possibility of a man like that walking out onto the loggia as the next pope would be extraordinary. But there's a problem now in some ways uh, between uh, Archbishop Shevchuk and... Uh, maybe that's pushing it too far, but there's a reason why he's not a cardinal. Well, I can't help thinking about China, Father Ben, about the way that Catholics loyal to the Holy See and the underground church for decades were regarded as a seeping wound by Beijing and um, have received similarly unkind, to put it mildly, treatment from the Holy See. Well, we've spoken before on this wonderful podcast about China and uh, cardinal Zen, we talk about heroes of the faith. We talk about these great cardinals who've suffered so much. Cardinal Zen hasn't been imprisoned yet, but he has condemned this Vatican-China deal, which is still secret. We still don't know what they agreed to, but the reality is the persecution now in China has increased since the Vatican-China deal. If we speak with complete honesty and complete tra transparency, this is a bad deal this is a very bad deal. This is a deal that, once again, throws a faithful church under the bus. There's nothing good that we can say about this Vatican-China deal. It's a repeat of a failed policy. This is a new Ostpolitik, very Ost, as in really Eastern, with China. But it's, it's a revival of a failed policy. One of the things John Paul did when he became Pope, having emerged from this oppression of communism was basically he stopped Ostpolitik. He, he realised it hadn't worked. But now we've had this revival with this deal with China, which is a grotesque betrayal of faithful Catholics who have suffered 
for decades, decades. For, strangely enough, the one main reason they've suffered is because of their loyalty to Rome. Because China has always wanted them to be a separate church, to be controlled, to be a Chinese, as it's called, patriotic church. And they stayed loyal. And now it's a tragedy. It's an absolute tragedy. And the, the parallels with the Ukraine and with Russia are very striking, I think. And I think there's something distinctive about the approach of this pontificate under this, I think, very, very bad pope, which is that Beijing isn't condemned for its atrocities. And so far, Putin hasn't been condemned for his atrocities by the pope. There hasn't been any mention since the so-called China deal of any atrocities in China. There's been no mention of Hong Kong, what's going on in Hong Kong. And as we recall... Cardinal Zen, this 90-year-old man, came to Rome seeking an audience and was not received. Indeed, but my point is that Pope Francis, unlike almost every Western leader, refused to name Russia as the aggressor in Ukraine. He left that up to his Secretary of State, Cardinal Paralin, and even that was late in the day. And you have someone like Robert Mickens, one of the most dogmatically liberal supporters of Pope Francis, saying... Do the Pope and his Vatican aides really believe that appeasing Russian oligarchs and hierarchs is their best strategy in advancing the cause of Christian unity? And on which altar are they willing to sacrifice the Ukrainian people to do so? That's Bobby Mickin, of all people, saying that. Yes. This is why I say this policy of ecumenism has failed. We don't have any animosity towards the Russian Orthodox Church. We want unity, but ecumenism must always be based on honesty and fraternity, not fudging. We've had so much fudging. If you think of some of the ecumenical dialogue which happened with the Anglican Church, which we can see now is almost a complete waste of time. So much of it was fudge. It was a tea party, get together, have a nice chat, have a cup of tea. But this is deadly serious with the Russian Orthodox. And we must have a dialogue of truth and honesty. And we, we, there's never been an apology, for example. The Catholic Church, if you remember, John Paul went on almost an apology tour, and God bless him for it. He was apologising for everything, for, for the sack of Constantinople and, and this, that and the other. And fair enough. But there's still problems in Ukraine with church property, in fact, all across the former communist world. But never once have the Orthodox apologised for forcibly incorporating the Ukrainian Catholic Church into the Orthodox Church. Never once has there been an apology for the murder of so many Catholic bishops and priests and lay people. Nothing, nothing. And so with China, it's the same thing. Don't mention the name because perhaps the thought is this will help. It hasn't helped at all. Truth and honesty and transparency is what's needed now. Well, you're dealing with two stooge churches basically arms of tyrannical governments. I would say don't expect a change in Vatican policy until we have a change of pontificate, and may that change of pontificate happen very soon. I know you can't comment on that, but that's my firm view, and I can't help wondering what Cardinal Hell meant when he said, I also regret the absence of support for you in all your suffering. I think he was saying very clearly what we've discussed. This is a long history, but it's a history which now needs to change because this church, they are in, in grave danger. If Russia takes over Ukraine, will the Ukrainian Catholic Church be forced underground again? There's certainly a possibility. Without being too pious, Damien, 
we are called to pray for this wonderful church and to ask God's uh, blessing on them. And because they, they strengthen us in the faith when you see these wonderful people, men, women, children who are faithful and have stayed faithful. So we ask God to protect and help them. Father Ben Keeley, thank you very much.